Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to send.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I am thrilled with our guest today. I mean, we're going to be speaking with the founder of this company that has built literally a rocket ship, like one of the very first day unicorns out of Manchester in the UK. And we're going to really hear, you know, the ups, the downs, you know, everything, you know, that really uh, takes to build a, a company uh, like this. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Matthew Scullion. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So originally born and raised in Manchester. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Oh, you know, I'm I'm a proud Mancunian. That's what us people from Manchester call ourselves. <laughs> uh, I like to remind people Manchester was once upon a time maybe the centre of the modern world. It was it, it was the capital of the Industrial Revolution, uh, and also, of course, where software was invented. The world's first stored program computer was developed at Manchester University. But growing up, uh, I, I would describe my upbringing as uh, normal. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, particularly traumatic. It wasn't particularly exceptional. I sometimes feel slightly embarrassed uh, to say that I was Brought up in Manchester, still live in Manchester, and my company is co-headquartered in Manchester. It sounds like I'm a bit obsessed, but it's a good town, and I had a pleasant enough upbringing. And at 17 years old, something really changed. And uh, that is essentially you entering the employment or the labor you know, type of market. So, so what happened there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a bit embarrassing to talk about now, perhaps. Hey, I was at... Uh, high school or grammar school, as we called it, uh, where I was at. Um, here in the UK, we do a, a period of your education called A-levels, which take a couple of years. And essentially, those are the qualifications you take in order to get you into university or, or college, depending on what you call it. And I was studying for my A-levels. And at my particular uh, school, as part of that, um, you had to do a couple of weeks work experience, uh, I think mostly to check you knew how to get out of bed in the morning and, and uh, you know, turn up to an office on time. I ended up working at an end user IT department of a local uh, uh, fashion and apparel business uh, in, in Manchester. 
And um, I obviously didn't do too many things wrong because at the end of the week, uh, the the IT director, the gentleman in charge, said to me, hey, Matthew, you seem like a energetic young man. Would you like a part-time summer job here while you uh, uh, complete your studies? And I thought, well, yeah, that sounds fun. I think people always assume that I was a full-on computer geek, and that's why I ended up there. But actually, I wasn't. I had always been interested in business, and I was okay with a computer, you know, the same as the next guy. Uh, but this seemed like a way of earning some money and getting some experience. And so I, I took this job. And over the summer, they gave me a laptop and a desk, and, and I ended up teaching myself a programming language. And, and, and by uh, the end of the summer, they kicked out the paid consultant that they were using to build software for them. And, and I was doing the consulting. And I was very pleased about it at the time. I've subsequently learned that guy was getting paid uh, £650 per day, and I was getting paid £2.75 per hour. So it was a good deal for them, uh, but, a, but a great uh, lesson learned for me. Uh, but it was that part-time job that actually launched me on my career because the, the guy that I was working for uh, a few months later said, hey, I'm actually going to leave this company and do a startup. Um, and uh, you know, you and I have been working together for a while now would you like to come and do this startup with me? And um, it, it was just one of those moments in life where you could say yes to something like that. I, I was on paper going off to university, but I thought to myself, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, maybe I do a year at this startup, it doesn't work out, but I've had some great work experience and then I just go to university. Or maybe the startup does work out and then maybe I never end up bothering going to university and I'm already off on my career. So uh, yes, you're absolutely right. At 17, I entered the world of work and that's how. And, and at 21, literally this company got acquired. And uh, I mean, at 21, you know, most of us uh, are still in school uh, and we don't even know what that looks like. But in your case, at 21, you had the opportunity of going through the full cycle. So how was that for you? How was that experience from going to point A to point C and coming out, you know, with success, especially at such a young age and, and also being your first company? I mean, first company, first exit, you know, not bad. Yes. And I, I, I always, whenever speaking on the public record, feel I should be clear that I was the co-founder of that business. I was the CTO, but there was, a, uh, there was another gentleman who I remain great friends with that, that took the entrepreneurial risk and set it up. I was the co-founder. But you're absolutely right. It's not that usual, particularly in the UK and in Manchester, for a 21-year-old guy to have built, uh, helped build a startup. You know, it was uh, um, an amazing experience. We set this company up. I, I, I should say we weren't very good at it, right? And that's not a massive surprise. My co-founder had never built a business before, and I was 17, right? But um, I, I spent some time in my evenings and weekends kind of doing this side project for the company of building an early web content management system, and that turned out to work pretty well. And some companies bought it and it won some awards. And it was really that um, that made the company end up getting acquired by a, a you know a, a billion dollar revenue American company. So by the time I was 21, I had in a in a microcosm experienced many of the things that would serve me very well in my later career, explained value to customers in such a way where they'd uh, wanted to 
pay for our software to solve a problem for for us. And, you know, that's something that we do every day in Matillion today. Yeah. Uh, I had dealt with stress and risk and prioritization. Again, things that I do every single day, the ups and downs, the, the days where you think, are we still going to be here tomorrow? And the days where you win the big order and you're celebrating. Perhaps, though, the most important thing I feel that I learned um, and got a head start on um, was in uh, leadership and managing people, uh, getting a team of smart people aligned on doing something together, uh, because it, that's all business is, um, particularly as a CEO, your job's to build a world-class team uh, and get them all pointed in the same direction. And uh, many of us only get the opportunity to start doing that later in our career. You know, we we finish university, we start off our career as an individual contributor. It's much later that we become uh, a manager um, or a, an executive within a business. Whereas I was lucky to be able to get started managing people from 17 years old. So by the time I was, you know, in my early 30s setting up Matillion, I already had 15 years of experience doing it, which was uh, a great uh, advantage for me, I feel. And and why do you think it took you? Because after the company was acquired, then you went to to work, you know, with 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 other folks and other companies. But as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. Why do you think it took you so long? And and like, what was that the the, the thought process with? Hey, I'm just gonna work here, and 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 then you know you ended up launching in Matillion. So why didn't you? Why why do you think you didn't launch like something immediate after this company? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I've never been asked that question in that particular way, but I think it's a good one. There's probably two or three learnings I could take here. So one of them was, I think this is true, although it would be easy for me to be revisionist here. Um, yeah. I did realize that I didn't know a lot of what I needed to know to build a stellar onward career. Uh, you know, it's really great setting up a business when you're 17 and selling it when you're 21. But I was pretty raw at that point, right? There was definitely some more basics that I needed to learn. So I think I had it in the back of my head that I probably needed to learn a bit more. I could over-index on that, though, and that would probably be revisionist, uh, just like to tell a good story. You know, being more intellectually honest, some of it was financial because when my company got acquired uh, uh, you know, there were share options and things that I needed to work to crystallize in the next company. And we can all learn from that, right? If there's a few hundred thousand or million bucks, it was, alas, a few hundred thousand for me. <laughs> um, yeah, right. uh, but if there's a few hundred thousand things waiting for you over the rainbow, then then that helps uh, you stick around. And I did. Uh, secondly, I was still being intellectually challenged. and And this is something that I think about all the time now as I'm hiring uh, the world's best people to work in Matillion, it's really important that they get paid, right? It's really important that they've got the right job title. The culture is incredibly important, and we should talk about that separately. And uh, they need to be able to see that they could uh, potentially have a big outcome at some future liquidity event. But in my opinion, for talented people, the most important thing is feeling leveraged. Like, are you learning? Are you making a difference? Are you having fun? Does it feel like it matters that you turn up for work every day? And for several years after that acquisition, it did feel like that for me. And, and I was still having fun and learning and making a difference. And that was actually the tipping point that made me step away from that business and set up Matillion 
when that ceased to become the case, when I, when I started to just feel like a cog in a machine, then I was like, yeah, I'm not enjoying this anymore. Lastly, I would say that um, uh, to any proto entrepreneur, I'd, I'd definitely think about this uh, next concept, which is comfort, right? I mean, one of the benefits of being a 21-year-old guy that's just had a company that he part owns acquired is that I earn loads compared to any of my peers, right? I had like a six-digit salary and a really nice company car. Um, and I could have happily cruised into my 50s and bought a nice house and, you know, not really worried about too much in life. So comfort is like the antidote to entrepreneurialism in a way. And yeah. I, I, I had to take that brave decision to say, yeah, I'm going to walk away from this comfortable and secure life and go into the high-risk world of entrepreneurship. Um, uh, my wife help, helped me make that decision. She gave me the kick that I needed. Um, uh, but I just uh, encourage listeners to be aware of that if you're if you're thinking about setting up a business, because it's just so easy to not do it because you're comfortable. And in this case, Rizzi, your wife, you know, gave you that push. Uh, and uh, I mean, at, at this point, you were already like really exposed to the data analytics stuff and how complex it was and, and all of that good stuff. So now that uh, you were really pushed by, by your wife that really saw the potential that you were throwing it away, you know, by, by being employed, right? Uh, tell us about what was that transition like into like the idea of Matillion coming to you and then you saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go forward with this and I'm going to launch this business. Yeah, so there's the, the personal side and the business side. So the, the personal side, uh, I've often joked with myself uh, that if I ever write a book about how to be a software entrepreneur, which I probably won't because I'm sure there are many far better books than I could write out there already. But if I ever was, chapter one would be called Be Single or Marry Well, um, <laughs> because it's very all-consuming uh, being an entrepreneur and a, and a CEO. And um, my wife, Caroline, Mrs. Scullion, was incredibly supportive of me doing it. And then uh, all the time that I've been doing it since, which has been 11 years. And that's really important because you're going to be all in. And, and if your family for probably very understandable reasons, isn't supportive of that, then that's going to be hard. You're going to be conflicted. So I've always been incredibly lucky in that respect. I will also say it was remarkably brave of my wife to encourage me to do that because, as I say, I've been financially comfortable in a not-too-difficult job, didn't work horrendously long hours. We were going to go to a position where uh, that was very precarious financially, for many years. And we were also just starting a family. And I should say we weren't wealthy. Um, uh, you know, I was a, a, just a well-paid wage earner. And so when that wage stopped, we, you know, we were financially exposed. So incredibly brave of her. On the professional side, um, you know, the company that I'd set up back when I was 17 um, years old or helped set up, it had been acquired. That had led to a job in a large consulting firm. And I, I'd kind of stayed in that industry for like approximately a 10-year run. Towards the end of that run, one of the things that I'd been tasked by this large company that I worked for at the time to do was to build out a data analytics consulting practice in the UK. Uh, this particular firm 
was the uh, the largest implementer of business intelligence and analytics solutions in Europe at the time. Um, but they didn't do much of it in the UK. And I ran the UK software division for this company at the time. So um, uh, what I did do, though, in other parts of my role is I, I did a lot of software development or rather my team did for uh, British blue chip companies. And we were also just starting to do our first forays of work into public cloud and using AWS to build solutions for customers. So I knew software really well, was beginning to know and like cloud really well, and then was asked to build this data analytics business. And essentially what we observed, what I observed was that there's a big demand for better data in business. And, you know, this sounds obvious to say, to say in 2022, but this was back like 2009, 2010. It wasn't quite as prominent back then. But every CIO or CFO I spoke to was happy to spend money to have better data. The projects at the time, though, had bad outcomes. I think the industry stat was 70% failure rate on the projects. They were expensive, took a long time, failed a lot. So I thought, well, I wonder if there's an opportunity to make this better using this new cloud technology. Could we do data analytics on the cloud and shorten those project timescales, make it easier to do this stuff for organizations? I actually pitched the idea to my employer, uh, this big European SI that I was working for. I'm like, hey, we're making a load of money doing BI, but I think we should do it differently and do it in the cloud. And unsurprisingly, they said no. Uh, so. It was that plus the push from my wife, Caroline, that made me quit that job, found Matillion, a, a company uh, there to make the world's data useful at the intersection of data analytics and the cloud. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, day one, day one at Metilium, day one, really, it was the beginning. The beginning, but also the beginning of thinking about culture and how you were thinking about principles and how those have been the pillars you know, of, of what, how you guys have built the organization when it comes to, to the, the human capital side. So how did you guys think about culture and what did you do on the intranet? 
Yeah. So um, thanks for allowing me to share that story. Uh, Matillion today is, uh, uh, I still consider us to be early in our journey, but undoubtedly we've made some progress. We're, uh, as you mentioned in your pricey at the beginning, a unicorn now and, you know, many hundreds of team members and customers all over the world. But back on day one, it was just me and, and my co-founder, our CTO, a gentleman called Ed Thompson. And by the way, he and I had already known each other for 10 years at that point, um, working in our last gig, right? So it's a bit weird that the very first thing that I did on the very first morning of Matillion, I think it was January 20th, uh, 2011, I think it was 20th, was we sat down and we made ourselves a cup of tea because we're British. Um, and then he started writing some software, which was probably the right thing to do. And I set up an intranet. Um, for the two of us that had already known each other for 10 years. <laughs> but but the reason I did that was to give me an opportunity to write down uh, a page on that internet called the Matillion Values. And as I'd been thinking in the prior months and you know after the push that had been given to me by my wife about what I hopes this company would be, uh, I, I wrote down a few things in the business plan. I was like, well, I want it to work at the intersection of cloud and data. I want to develop our own IP. I want a recurring revenue model. And I want it to be something beautiful, something that I can be proud of and, and uh, yeah, you know, done in what I consider to be the right way. And so why did I write down the values on the very first morning? It, it was to hold myself, uh, and I hoped in future other Matillioners that weren't yet part of the company, but on day one, as much as anyone myself, to account on how I thought we should act and behave in the way that we built the company. Now, if you fast forward to today, there's hundreds of Matillioners now, and, and the values are important to all of them. Um, and the culture uh, that Matillion has, uh, I, I, I think, and I think most Matillioners agree with me, is a big part of why we've been uh, uh, successful to date and why I hope we'll go on to have lots more success. And that culture is underpinned by those values. On, on day one, there was three We've elaborated it a couple of years later to six. But, you know, the first value, the very first words I wrote in Matillion were confidence without arrogance. Um, you know, we're trying to do something big. We're trying to make a dent in the universe bigger than ourselves. But we're not going to be arrogant about it because that closes our eyes and stops us learning at an accelerated rate. And also people don't like it. So that's one example of one of those values. I look back on it as one of, if not the best things that I've done. So, you know, it's all been downhill since there. That was the first morning. Um, but um, the um, uh, crystallizing those values, holding myself accountable to them, but also all future Matillioners accountable to them has helped us build that durable culture, uh, which I uh, give the credit to a lot of our success to. And for the people that are listening to really understand what Matillion is and is all about, I mean, what's the business model and how do you guys make money? Yeah, absolutely. So Matillion's mission is to make the world's data useful. Every aspect of how we work, live and play today in 2022 is being changed for the better uh, by data, uh, with data. And that's happening everywhere right now and incredibly quick. But the problem with that story is that every analytics dashboard you've ever used, um, every AI use case you've read about or machine learning startup that you've heard about or will ever hear about, they all rely on a supply of useful 
analytics ready data to fuel them. And, and actually, that tends to be about 60 to 70 percent of the project time of doing an analytics project. It's not coaching the machine learning model or building the beautiful data visualization. It's getting the data ready. Uh, and there are other ways to do it. You can do it manually in code, but that's slow and requires scarce skills and is hard to maintain. There are technologies a bit like Matillion, but invented for the pre-cloud world, but they don't work brilliantly in the cloud. And so Matillion is trying to solve this problem. And it's a big problem that we're solving because every company experiences it. They're doing so more as every aspect of how we work, live and play is changed for the better with data. Um, uh, and we can't get those benefits uh, uh, in our organizations and, until we open that supply chain of useful data. And so that's why we've been put on the earth. That's our mission. Um, how do we do that? We're delivering a platform of built for the cloud and built for enterprise data integration technology that helps customers load data from a, a wide variety of sources, everything from Salesforce and Marketo to enterprise ERP systems like SAP and NetSuite, down to you know, old heterogeneous systems running banks and insurance companies or new bespoke systems with REST APIs. You can pull all your data together into one place. Once you've got it there, crucially, you can refine it. Uh, you, you need data to be clean and tidy, embellished with metrics at the right level of granularity, but that's not how data is born. You have to refine it, a bit like iron ore into steel. We have to refine raw data into analytics-ready data. We call that transformation, and, and that's at the heart of Matillion's products. And crucially, in Matillion, you do it in a visual, low-code, no-code way, which means a wider audience of people are able to do it, and therefore organizations can go faster. And then finally, we can orchestrate all of that because it gets complicated, particularly in big companies. We can orchestrate all of that in a sophisticated and reliable way at an enterprise scale. So that's what we do. Um, as a business model, um, we are, um, uh, well, we're B2B, um, which is probably obvious by now. We sell to other companies. We sell to both uh, commercial scale companies. So this is smart, ambitious, fast moving, smaller businesses. We define those as being sub 500 million in revenue. Um, or it can be to enterprise companies north of 500 million in revenue and oftentimes north of a billion. If they're north of a billion, we count them as the global 8,000. And that's our real stomping ground as regards where we get most of our revenue. And we are a bottoms up velocity sales motion. So what that means is whilst many customers spend certainly tens, often hundreds and occasionally millions of dollars on our software, um, you know, they get to a million by way of 100,000 by way of 20,000 by way of a free trial. And we don't sell our software to a company by doing a 12-month sales cycle and taking the CIO out for a steak dinner and a game of golf. We started by working with the people with the actual problem, making the software as easy as possible to adopt. Um, and then as they use it more, they pay as they drink and gradually get more value and pay for that value with more dollars bottoms up, right? Well, uh, um, uh, land and expand, that's sometimes also called. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that we're a consumption-based business model, which is really, in our opinion, the, the contemporary and best way of selling software. You know, back in the 2000s, we had perpetual licensing. You, know, you bought the right to use software forever, and then you'd pay a support fee of like 10 or 20% annually. 
And then through the 2010s, we were mostly SaaS. So you paid for a 12-month subscription for a given number of users or whatever the unit of measure was. Uh, today, companies like Snowflake and Databricks and AWS and Azure and also Matillion, uh, we are consumption-based business models. You buy, uh, you either pay as you drink or buy credits, and then you burn through those credits as you decide to apply the software to things. And, and that tightly correlates what you pay to the value you get. And we think that's the way the industry is going. Got it. And now in terms of uh, capital, how have you guys uh, capitalized the business? How much have you raised so far? So we've raised $310 million. That's a lot of millions for a company out of Manchester. Matthew, and I know that uh, for you guys, the Series B was quite, uh, quite a very important milestone. So uh, how were you able to really get people from Silicon Valley to come in and invest in a company out of Manchester? Yeah, the Series B investment for me was a real moment for me personally in the company um, because we had two world-class and blue-chip Silicon Valley investors, you know, one of the 10 investors that matter in B2B software, uh, two of the 10 investors that matter in B2B enterprise infrastructure software in Silicon Valley, both joined Matillion's cap table. And it just felt wonderful. It felt like a moment of affirmation and validation and kind of putting us on the world stage. It was just such a lovely feeling saying to my team, hey, um, Scale Venture Partners and Sapphire Ventures, who also between them backed HubSpot and RingCentral and Fitbit and LinkedIn and Box and DocuSign, and now backing Matillion. You can imagine the energy that that gave to my team at the time. How did we do it? Well, first of all, uh, if, I, if you'll indulge me, I'll go right back to the beginning because I think there's a, there's a piece of advice here. To get the business started, I needed £450,000, which I didn't have because I, I didn't have any independent means particularly. Uh, and I approached three former bosses from my previous set of jobs. We've spoken about my first job when I was 17 and the 10 years after that. Well, one of the things that I was lucky to be able to do in that 10 years was work with some brilliant people. And I guess looking back on it, I must have sufficiently impressed them or inspired confidence in them that when I wanted to set up a business, I had some people that I could ring up and say, hey, I'm going to set up this company. It's going to do this. Do you fancy investing? And, and three of those people did. One of them, a gentleman called Peter McCord, shortly after actually joined the business as an operator as well. And he's been very instrumental to the success of the business. I'm incredibly grateful for him being part of our story. But the, the lesson there for me is that even in that prior 10 years, and you know, you asked me earlier, what were you doing? Uh, well, one of the things I was doing was trying my best to always do a good job and keep promises and do business with integrity. And that meant that when I came to set up a business, uh, I was able to approach a couple of people and they trusted me enough to back me. They have subsequently admitted that they didn't think that I knew much more about what I was proposing to do than they did. But it wasn't the business plan that I showed them that they backed. It was me. And, and I think the advice I'd always therefore give to people is just, you know, always be thinking about your integrity because that stuff lasts a lifetime. Oh, yeah. Move on. You know, Matillion started to make a bit of progress. We've launched Matillion ETL and some customers to start, uh, which is the, the, the heart of our product platform today. And uh, some customers have started to buy it. And we're at about half a million dollars of ARR. We're about 15 or 20 people. Um, and we um, we thought we needed some venture capital um, because we'd had this great idea. It's a big market. We needed to move quick. We didn't want to get overtaken. You know, the biggest enemy of high growth businesses 
Uh, it's not competition. It's not capital. Uh, it's not, you know, mishires or any of the 101 other things that go wrong every day. The biggest enemy of a high growth business is time. Um, and you can feel the time ebbing away. And one way to fight against time is to raise venture capital dollars so you can move quicker, hire more people and move quicker. And we uh, kind of started to realize this. So I had one friend in Silicon Valley. Um, this uh, gentleman was the CEO of one of our suppliers. I'd met him at a dinner and made friends with him. And so I phoned him up to ask for advice. And he said, well, I can make you an introduction to a couple of Silicon Valley VCs. I was like, great. So I jumped on a plane. We didn't have much money at this point, by the way. I mean, I'd only raised £450,000 sterling and we were running a, a, a cash burning business. So like money was tight. I got the cheapest possible ticket I could out to Silicon Valley, um, uh, you know, via about three different airports, stayed in a motel and went and did three venture capital pitches. And they all said no. And so I assumed that we weren't a Silicon Valley uh, backable business. Uh, so I flew back to the UK and we, um, we appointed a, uh, a small corporate finance boutique. Um, and they introduced us to maybe 10 or 20 British investors, one of whom went on to uh, do our Series A round with us, which was a $5 million round. We then circle back 18 months later and do the Series B. And at this point, uh, you know, our story was a lot stronger. Uh, we had an office in New York. We had customers, I think, by that point in over 20 uh, countries. We were at 4 million of ARR rather than 400,000. And people had started to hear about us a little bit. And so, but crucially, the main thing that I did differently at the Series B to the Series A is spoke to more than three people uh, because the rule of thumb as I've subsequently learned, is that if you want one term sheet, you do 10 pitches and you really want three term sheets. So that means you need to do 30 pitches and probably 10 for luck. You should be doing 40 pitches for an early stage fundraising round. And I'd done three, right? Uh, uh, one of the ones that I did was actually to scale venture partners. And they came back and invested at the B round. And I said to them, was my pitch really terrible at A? And they were like, no, it wasn't that bad. We just happened to be invested in someone that we considered to be competitive at the time. I didn't know any of that back then. <laughs> so I just assumed we weren't a Silicon Valley backable business. Second time round, did it a bit more professionally and was absolutely thrilled to have Sapphire Ventures and, and scale venture partners in, invest in the business. Uh, another, The final thing I'll say on this is, the, for non-Silicon Valley-based entrepreneurs, I think there's a lesson there. Um, uh, it's not that common that British software entrepreneurs wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to make a dent in the universe bigger than myself. Um, I'm going to solve a big problem and change the world. And I'm going to go and raise millions, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital in order to do that in Silicon Valley. But I... Did that? Um, uh, 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 you know, the happen chance of life led me to doing that, and 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 we were successful. I may well have been successful at Series A had I known to try a bit harder, <laughs> and I was successful at Series B. The expertise and ambition that those Silicon Valley investors installed in us the moment after they um, invested uh, have helped completely change the trajectory and outcome for Matillion. So. Not only was that day full of pride uh, for me, uh, but it was also a day that helped keep us on the on the course to becoming a consequential company. Does that answer the question? 
that does answer the question, Matthew, very well. So, um, so I guess you know now, obviously, Matillion, incredible uh, company that you that you guys have built. You know, unicorn status, hundreds of employees, global presence. I guess you know, like over the course of of this time, you know, of of, of this decade uh, plus, now that uh, that you have all uh, been pushing this, I'm sure that there's been you know a lot of lessons learned and and and. Uh, if I was to put you into a time machine and and bring you back in time, you know, maybe to that point where you were 17 years old and 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 perhaps you know thinking about going into the employment market and or even you know like maybe jumping into building you know that first business, if you were able to sit that Matthew younger Matthew down and and give that younger Matthew one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be given what you know now? If I'd been talking to myself, the 17-year-old Matthew Scullion, uh, it would have been uh, be bolder um, because it took me a while, as you rightly held me to account to. Uh, yeah, you know, unusual and fun to start a business at 17, but there was no moment in that business where I thought everybody in the industry would have heard the name of our company. I just didn't think that happened to people from Manchester or uh, uh, Madrid or places that weren't San Francisco. It just hadn't occurred to me. Um, and uh, if I'm honest with you, that was also true as I founded Matillion as well. Uh, I definitely knew I wanted to build something beautiful and that I could be proud of and that I thought had been done right. But as I founded Matillion in early 2011, I didn't expect to build uh, a consequential company and I haven't done yet, by the way. We're, we're materially on the way, but there's a lot more growth to come than has happened uh, already, which is why we're all still working very hard. Uh, so I think the advice that I would have given myself is, you know, be bold, like try and change the world. That doesn't mean that the only thing that one should take success and validation from is creating lots of enterprise value and raising lots of venture capital. There are lots of ways to make a dent in the universe bigger than yourself. But it, it is like, don't be shy, right? Don't be inhibited by the limitations of your own vision. Uh, because you can wake up in, you know, a, a rainy gray day in South Manchester, UK, and build uh, a company that goes on to have thousands of uh, large customers and tens of thousands of users and slowly but surely is solving a really big problem. I didn't know that when I was 17, and I'm beginning to realize that that's the case now. Um, I, I do think that the world would be a better place if if we did that. I, I mean, I'm a, a, a proud Mancunian and a proud British person. Um, I, I think there are many wonderful things about my country, as there are about all countries. But we don't create consequential um, high-growth technology companies at the same rate as some other geographies in the world, most notably Silicon Valley. And yet the two places I spend most time are uh, Manchester, UK and Silicon Valley, or actually Denver, Colorado as well, because that's where I had offices in the US. But, you know, I notice more similarities than differences between those places. And yet Silicon Valley creates loads of consequential tech companies and Manchester, not quite as many. One of the biggest differences, I think, more similarities than differences, but one of the biggest differences is just in that cognition that it can be done. Uh, because once you've got the cognition, you then start behaving accordingly. You 
you know that you need to learn at an accelerated rate. So you do and you get yourself introduced to people that can help you and you dedicate time to doing that. You know that time's your biggest enemy. So you start getting really urgent and purposeful about everything you do. You know that you're going to need capital to fuel it. So you go and raise it. Uh, but those things are all born from thinking, yeah, in whatever my small way is, I'm going to change the world. So that's the thing that I'd give myself the advice. I love it. And Matthew, for the people that are listening, um, if they want to reach out and say hi, what is the best way to do so? Well, I would absolutely love that. I'm always happy to talk making data useful and data integration. I'm always happy to talk business building and entrepreneurship. And if I can be helpful to anyone, I'd be happy to. You can find me on LinkedIn. It's Matthew um, Scullion, S-C-U-L-L-I-O-N. And the company is Matillion. Um, and you can get me on Twitter as well, at Matthew Scullion. Amazing. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Oh, and such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. And uh, and good luck with the next one. I, I hope some of what we covered is uh, useful and interesting to someone. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.